Hello everyone, it's August 8th, 2023, and Astrospace has been making some layoffs. They have a whole Rocket 4 development program going on, but in the meantime, they need to make ends meet. So that means making changes. We're going to talk about what those changes are and what all this means for the future of Astra. And liftoff! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 421 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Hey, Dennis, I, I've been really uh, jonesing for some Cape uh, Canaveral trivia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I just, uh, I've been reading a lot about um, uh, the, you know, pads uh, 39A and B, as well as the, you know, the history behind them, and then just the rest of the Cape's facilities. And I came upon the uh, the, the shuttle landing facility. And it's a single airstrip, but they call it different runways depending on your approach. And hmm. so um, it's too bad Chris S. has left the chat because he's our resident commercial air pilot. And I wonder if this happens elsewhere. But yeah, evidently, if you come in from the northwest, it's runway 15. And if you come in from the southeast, it's runway 33. And those are like the two ways. Every single do runway does that. Every single runway um, does that? Yeah. So take the number. Add a zero to the end, and that is the heading from north. 150, and then 330. Yeah, so 330 is like north-northwest. That's Okay, so that's why there's a difference of 18 between them, because that's 180 degrees, which is opposite each other. Yeah. Huh. So do you mean when you're approaching from a different direction, or like when you actually land from a different direction because some runways, you yeah, know. Yeah, it's, it's the direction that you land on the runway because you can okay. start at one end and go to the other or you can start the other and go to the, the other other. <laughs> is that something that you can do with all runways? That No, no, that is how every single runway works. In fact, if you look at any commercial runway, um, they have the a number and usually a letter. If there's more than one runway, you'll have, you know, 32L, 32C, 32R, and they'll have those numbers painted on the threshold. And then you'll have one number at one end facing one direction and then another number at the other end facing the opposite direction. It doesn't matter if you, you know, approached from the east or from the west and then turned north Mm -hmm. and landed in a northbound direction. It's still the same runway. We just call each end a different name. I'm just surprised by that because big airports, as far as I know, or else of course I actually don't know, I didn't think that they ever, you know, reverse direction on runway oh, yeah. landings. It seems that, you know, there's a direction that you take off in. Mm. I know that small runways do that a lot, but, you they, know, as they far as big airports. They to, to take off and land in the same direction, but that's not because of any airport planning for the most part. It's almost always due to the, the wind. You want to land and take off headed into the wind and so if the wind changes direction you're gonna change direction on the on the runway as well right but again i thought that was something that only smaller airports did and specifically (laughs) you know just because they're small and you might have to do that because you don't have a lot of yeah yeah. like if you were landing at jfk you saying that jfk they might reverse the direction well we certainly learned me and david learned something new and can i also just uh just say that I'm a little aggravated at the uh, NASA document I got this from because all they said was literally <laughs> one sentence. Although a single landing strip, it is considered two runways depending on the approach from either the northwest on runway 15 or the southeast on runway 33. Left out apparently a lot of context there and made me <laughs> sound like an absolute knucklehead, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and they wrote that. That's somebody who knows a lot about the subject to the point where this seems like an absolutely obvious and trivial fact. Mm. And then they (laughs) talked to somebody and realized, oh, yeah, not everybody knows about this. And so they decided to include it because they're like, ah, here's a good here's a good little trivia bit for people who 
aren't familiar with this and mm. totally forgot that people who aren't familiar with it won't understand their <laughs> trivia at all. <laughs> So there have been big layoffs at Astra. Mm. Did you want to go ahead and make any? Uh, oh yeah, my disclaimer: I've, yeah. I've lost my shirt with Astra stock, and uh, but I don't think I can. It's not any meaningful amount, and I can't meaningfully okay. influence them in any way. But just <laughs> anything oh, yeah, I mention on this is through yeah. that context or lens. I guess it's just worth <laughs> letting people know. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think we both bought a couple of shares after their uh, SPAC merger. And currently, how much are those shares worth now, actually, out of oh, curiosity? what? It's like it's like uh, two bucks, maybe? Oh, no, it's below a dollar. It's, yeah, it's well below a dollar. It's been below a dollar for a long time. As of right now, they're at 38 cents. It looks like last summer was the last time they were above a buck. And they traded at an all-time high. It looks like somewhere in the $19.55 range back in 21. Back when the SPAC booming was, mm-hmm. you know, on its... Yeah. Uh, rise and not on its fall for for an ipo or for a spac like the the price always jumps you know maybe even 50 percent uh 25 percent something like that and then it immediately plummets as it returns to its actual proper valued uh, amount and like i don't know about you dennis but mm-hmm. I, i'm pretty sure i bought during the spike because like I, I bought as soon as i realized that the merger was actually going through um, and I knew I was going to lose money and it looks like I've lost, uh, a buck 40 cents per share. And I think I own like five shares. Somebody else can do the math if they want. <laughs> um, and like that totally like, Oh yeah. So, I mean, if it, if that's how much I lost and I couldn't have bought that early on in the spike, uh, it, it must've been after the, the price actually started to settle out. Um, but yeah, like we both, Neither of us expected to make any money. We didn't care about making money. It's just a fun way to like ha- feel a little like you own a little piece of of a space company. Like that's cool. Um, like I also own a little bit of uh, SpaceX through. I, I think I still do through uh, my four hundred one k. Still has um, like a tech package. I think. Um, that's cool. And I switched. I switched like I don't know five percent of my. Uh, of my investment into this tech package, just so I could say that I owned a little bit of SpaceX, like truly, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> not uh, investment advice, not in, I don't consider it an investment. I consider it like, you know, just like buying a, a trinket at the gift store. Well, so to get into specifics, uh, a quarter of the workforce was laid off, which apparently is 70 people. And uh, then there was another 50 that were reassigned to work on the Astra spacecraft engine, which is an electric thruster that I believe Astra acquired. And I forgot to get the name of that. Oh, Apollo Fusion. Apollo Fusion. Thank you, Mike and Dank NASA Beams in the chat. Yeah. Uh quick response <laughs> i'm so glad that we get to say dank nasa memes <laughs> i just wanted to say actually I, I do like using that yeah so yeah they uh they acquired apollo fusion in 2021 um and the total value of uh the orders for this engine uh comes to about 77 million dollars and so this is something that they're hoping to have delivered by the end of 2024 but the problem is is that so far there is very little money so i guess they're dealing with more more short-term financial problems so that's kind of where they sit um and at the moment they have basically i don't know if they've taken all people off of rocket four is that uh no 
No, but a lot. It sounded like it was everyone for a second there. That's kind of how I was like reading it. Like, oh, are they just abandoning their ambitions with Rocket 4? Yeah, Chris Kemp specifically said they're not they're not abandoning Rocket 4. But I mean, it makes sense. Like if you are running out of money and you have orders for engines and you have maybe customers that are willing to fly on your rocket, but you haven't even flown one of them. Yeah, of course, you're going to stop working on the rocket quite so hard. Mm-hmm. And starts working harder on the engines, which can actually turn uh, some revenue mm-hmm. back towards you uh, in the short term. So, I mean, totally a reasonable thing to do. Uh, it really sucks to see them in this position, but they're kind of playing this strategy game, right? Like, like it, it almost starts to feel like, you know, a, a video game where you're doing resource management and you just kind of get stuck in a corner sometimes and you got to change what you're doing and get yourself back on your feet. And yeah, it, it, it sucks. Like we wanted to see Astra do really well right off the bat, but you know, rocketry is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I'd say it's notoriously difficult actually. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, rocket four has been delayed and we don't know for how long. Previously they said the end of the year. Now it's delayed and we don't know quite how much. So Dink Nassim Beans in the chat points out that they still actually have their USSF contract that they haven't fulfilled and that there's a penalty for not fulfilling it. So by moving away from rocket four, they're kind of maybe just biting the bullet and saying, yeah, we're going to wind up taking a penalty, but you know, there's more future, uh, revenue in, in this engine, presumably that that's a good idea. It sucks. It really tells you what, what a tough position they're in where they're potentially running out of contract that they haven't finished. Yeah. For this first quarter, of this year of 2023, there was uh, no revenue, actually. They expect half a million to $1 million in the second quarter, which I don't know enough about companies this size. Is that considered very good or just scraping by? So their market cap is just over $100 million. So yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you if you look at the amount of shares that they have out and the price of those shares, yeah, they're potentially earning you know, a quarter of their value in, in the second quarter. So yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that is a big number. So the financial forecast for cash on hand um, currently projected to be about 26 to about $26.5 million. Um, back in May, the forecast was about 30 through $33 million. So they're losing money <laughs> um, as the months progress. What is that a difference of about $7 million? But they blame this on delays in government receivables and tax credits. So basically, I guess they're just waiting on some money you know, to come in. It's kind of one of those situations. I don't know why there would be such a delay for these tax credits and government receivables, uh, which I don't know exactly what that is, but I assume it's some sort of, you know, contracted amount of money that they're supposed to receive from the government for a given service or contract that they have. Unspecified government work. Yeah. So we don't, you don't know because we don't know. (laughs) Nobody knows uh, other than the company, I suppose. So that's how they explain that disparity there. Back in July, and I don't think what we discussed this or even, I don't know, you might have since you guys own stock, but uh, they actually did announce a 1 to 15 reverse stock split. Since I don't know much about finance, I didn't know that this was a thing that you could do, but basically in order to keep the stock above $1, I guess you merge stock, right? You know how like it can split and so you just put it back together again to raise the value. Um, I I guess I should have known. It seems like in the world of finance, you can do pretty much anything you want to. Like, there's a way to make yep. it happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's very silly. It's a good honestly. Thing. Yeah. It really is silly. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I mean, like, you see these things and you go, really? That's like legal? I mean, all of finance is just people talking to people about things that don't exist, right? And so if yeah. if it doesn't exist to begin with, yeah, of, of course you can, you know, 
merge these things and split these things and pay dividends to the people who own these things. Like, it's just, yeah, it's all, it's all make-believe. But in, in this case, basically what happens is anybody who owns 15 shares, I don't think this has gone through yet. I don't think that it has because currently nah. the stock sits at below $1, right? Well, and also I don't think I own 15 shares. So I'll wind up, there, there'll be some policy. I'll probably wind up getting either a fractional share or I'll just get paid out and I won't own any shares. But if somebody owns 15 shares after this reverse stock split, they will own one share. And of course that keeps the price up because it's a, it's the supply and demand curve. The more of a thing there is, the less valuable it is. Specifically, it's in order to avoid being delisted from NASDAQ. So I assume that NASDAQ doesn't trade in like anything that's below a dollar, right? It's the it's the, the penny stock market, right? I think is what it's right. called. Penny stocks. So also on July 10th, when that announcement was made about the reverse stock split, they also announced that they were going to sell $65 million in common stock through what's called an at-the-market offering, which I believe just means that it's sold at the going rate and it's sold very slowly over time. It's a sum that's not sold in one lump sum. In common stock, does that mean stock that's owned specifically by the company, like not by a private individual? But no, I think... And I think common stock is what us plebs buy. And so when if a company goes under, they settle mm -hmm. with people who are more valuable and us common stockholders end up not getting a penny and lose it all. That's yeah. Is, is that right? <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, sure. Um, you can you can sometimes have a, a, a difference between like a common or like common stock and then like a voting share or voting stock. And so like you can have some that are a little different, but yeah, it just, it just means like they have, they have these shares that they kept and didn't sell. And now they're just going to be selling some of them out and just like for whatever the market is trying to not influence the price. Like you said. Yeah. And I guess just one final little thing that I guess I think would indicate how seriously they are taking this is that they hired a firm called PJT Partners, um, which uh, I suppose is a financial advisory firm of some sort. They did this specifically, quote, to focus on thoughtfully pursuing opportunities to raise additional capital, which I think is just sounds very corporate-y kind of, you know, yep. thoughtfully pursuing. Like, why would you say thoughtfully? But whatever. Because they're trying real hard not to say creative accounting. Do you think that this will clear up and it'll be fine, say, about, you know, a year or two from now? A year or two? No. I don't, I mean, fine. As long as fine means not amazing, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I do. But like, if fine means back to business as normal, no. Okay, so let's do three short and sweet this week. Ben, what is our first? Okie doke, Starship Activities. SpaceX is preparing for their next test launch out at Boca Chica and performed a deluge test on July 28th. The new deluge system, which is intended to combat the launch pad erosion seen during the first Starship launch back in April, behaves as expected, blowing pressurized water up through a perforated steel plate directly under the rocket engines. Booster 9 has been selected for this next launch, and a repellent loading test was performed on July 23rd, followed by a spin prime test on August 4th. SpaceX is expected to perform a static fire in the next few weeks with the deluge system turned on, but it's unknown how many engines will be involved. And then next up, Cygnus gets an upgrade. 
Northrop Grumman has announced a plan to upgrade its Cygnus cargo vehicle in order to meet future requirements of the ISS and other next-generation space stations. The upgrades include an increase in cargo capacity by over 1,000 kilograms, the ability to actively dock, as well as the ability to perform orbit-raising maneuvers for space stations. In an effort to gain potential customers, Northrop Grumman is already talking to future providers of LEO destinations in hopes of determining their specific needs. A long-duration version was part of NGSC's successful application to NASA's collaborations for commercial space capabilities, knowledge sharing contract, which we discussed in episode 419. Airbus and Voyager announced commercial space station plans. U.S.-based startup Voyager Space and European aerospace giant Airbus have announced an agreement to build a new space station, Starlab. While Starlab will be U.S.-led, a comparison of Airbus's Loop multipurpose orbital module and concept art for the station has led to speculation that Airbus will be developing and producing its primary pressurized module. Starlab completed its systems requirement review last month and is aiming to launch to LEO as early as 2028, where it will focus on research applications rather than space tourism. All right, moving along then to this week in spaceflight history, we have uh, four winners. Uh, we have the Greek, Saikal, Uncle Willie, and Sukir, and they, they all get bonus points. So congratulations. The clue was the Gemini before Gemini, or was it the other way around? It's the <laughs> other remember. way around, yeah. <laughs> okay, the Gemini before Gemini, and you're going to have to explain why the difference in pronunciation and so yeah what was the event yeah so the event was uh, or this week in space flight history was august 11th and 12th of 1962 and it was the launches of vostok 3 and 4 respectively so what were these uh well let's just start with um who were on these uh, spacecraft so these were both uh you know, single person spacecraft. Uh, it's nineteen. It's the summer of nineteen sixty-two. We've never flown with more than one person in a single spacecraft before. And uh, Vostok three was going to be flown by uh, Andrian Nikolaev, uh, who had flown once more on Soyuz nine, which I believe to this date is still the longest solo flight of an individual spacecraft. You know, just sending one spacecraft up and bringing it down. Uh, Soyuz nine basically maxed out that because we don't do that anymore. We go to space stations or do solo flights that are not quite as uh, grueling uh, endurance records as the early Soviet launches were. That's half of the TWISIF. Uh, the other half is Vostok 4, which was flown by Pavel Popovich, who uh, also flew once more, uh, in his case on Soyuz 14, which was the first successful uh, mission to a space station. Um, as you know, the early missions to those early Salyuts had a lot of problems getting there. So I thought it'd be good to talk context because when it comes to Soviet and Russian crewed spacecraft, there were Vostoks and then there were Soyuzes. And so <laughs> we, we were very familiar with the latter. And so um, to give you a sense of what the Vostok looked like, um, these were the ones that were just shaped like balls um, or rather a single spherical ball. Uh, there were a few different types of them, and uh, the ones that, you know, uh, humans flew in were Vostok uh, 3KAs. Uh, those were the human-rated ones. Um, the, uh, before any people went, you know, in them, including Vostok 1, which was, you know, Yuri Gagarin's flight, they would sometimes – these were the ones that would also have uh, animals – uh, they would put in them, or a different variant that would uh, they put cameras, spy cameras, essentially. And so that was an idea of how you could do spy cameraing without necessarily needing a uh, to retrieve uh, the canisters of film being dropped, you know, and, uh, under parachute and catch them by uh, planes like we were doing with the uh, Corona spy uh, craft. Instead, here you just basically brought the whole spacecraft back 
uh, to Earth and recovered your film and cameras that way. But when you were, you know, in one of these human-rated ones, right, you're basically in a hole, in, in a ball, and you had the porthole, uh, you know, window between your legs, so you could look down, you can actually see stuff. Uh, directly in front of you, you had your control panel, you had your switchboard on your left, and you had an attitude control handle on your right. And that's pretty much it. So it's pretty straightforward. I don't have to go into the grueling detail of this, you know, a, a diagram of all the different controls and everything. You know, I mean, there was clearly some level of sophistication to it, but it's pretty straightforward. You just got these basically three things sitting in front of you. And then that was the uh, pressurized uh, uh, habitable portion of the spacecraft. Um, and then, you know, stuck uh, at the aft end was an instrument module that, you know, had all the, you know, had avionics, uh, the retro engine for deorbiting and all this other, you know, important stuff, uh, all the real guts of the spacecraft, you know, to keep it functioning. We're all in there. It's kind of interesting, you know, you had this retro engine that needed to fire to bring you back to Earth, otherwise you get stuck up there, which is no good. And so as a safety measure, uh, these Vostok missions, um, there were, I believe, six of them, uh, these Vostoks uh, with, you know, crew were put in low enough uh, Leo that they would re-enter naturally on their own after five days, give or take two and a half days. And so uh, the idea then being that they would make sure that you had at least, you know, seven days worth of life support capable uh, on orbit. And if things looked like they were going south and you were kind of stuck up there longer and would need to wait for a natural decay, uh, then you could power off some systems and get 10 days uh, of, you know, being able to survive on orbit. And mercifully, the atmosphere would do the rest and bring you home. So I'd like that as a kind of, you know, fail safe where even if your retro rocket doesn't fire... Uh, you know, these people should be able to come back. I thought for sure you were going to say, give or take two days of oxygen supply in there somewhere. I'm like, I'm oh. glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds terrifying. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> and so um, also similar to how kind of the uh, Soviet uh, naming system worked back then, these Vostok spacecraft were launched on Vostok rockets. And so these you know, you would recognize them. They're the first, I mean, they just look like Soyuz essentially. They've got that quintessential shape and profile. Like you could tell they're not a Soyuz, but you know, they've got the, the core, you know, stage and they've got the four strap-ons. If you look at the bottom of them, you just see all these engine bells, dozens of engine bells all pointed at you, just a ridiculous amount of them. Um, and then you've got, cause they had a different naming scheme. So those strap-ons were the first stage, the core was the second stage. And then there was an upper stage that would hot fire and take you finish uh, giving you the Delta V to get into Leo. Uh, but there was something very new I learned about the Vostok rockets, which I think is beyond fascinating. And I wonder if you guys had seen this before the space, spacecraft, right? You're in your little ball spacecraft. They had ejection seats. And so how does that work if you have a payload fairing? Well, there's a hole cut out in the payload fairing. And through that hole is where the pilot would basically burst out through, like, uh, with the ejection seat if they ever needed to do that um, with one of these spacecraft. And so, you know, from now on, if you look at a, uh, a, a Vostok spacecraft, um, look at the fairing and you're going to see this like little carve out. Uh, it's only on one side. So depending on the angle, you might not be able to see it or it's kind of, you maybe only see part of it, but yeah, it's this little, uh, cutout for letting people eject through. 
Yep, that's a new fact I learned. Um, <laughs> and so how did the pilot eject from that hole exactly? So, Because it looks like it would have to eject more laterally than straight ahead, which I don't think is normal. Right. So, usually. so yeah, so my understanding, yeah, so it is, you would, so the pilot, I guess you think of it this way, the pilot's more or less on their back. And so that's why the ejection would be lateral. Because within this carve out of the payload fairing, you can see a curved surface that basically, I guess, mirrors the mold line of the the Vostok spacecraft. And so basically that inner bulge would basically burst and you'd have a, yeah, you'd have a pilot who's essentially head is pointed in that direction and they would go shoot, shooting off to the side, which I guess is necessary though, because, you know, ejection seats fire. Oh, Ben, wasn't there um uh, some uh, eyes in or eyes out sort of uh, terminology about this kind of thing? We, we, we talked yeah, about years I mean, ago, like, we, like where the, uh, the force that you feel, uh, whether it's oh. coming up, you know, through your head or, you know, through your back or whatever. Um, yeah. But I guess ejection seats, you know, fire, you know, give you a force up your bum and towards your head uh, when you're on airplanes and things like that. But if you're on a spacecraft and you want to be on your back, I mean, I suppose if they could still boost it through your back. But I guess the way this is set up is that it's through your butt it's still. It's not really too much about the the person's orientation, I don't think. I think it's more important to get out of the way of the rocket engines. So if, you know, when somebody is being chased or when somebody's trying to outrun, uh, you know, a comically large um, ball of rock uh, in, in a TV show, you're always like, run to the side, run to the side. And they just <laughs> run straight away from it. And like, great for drama, horrible for surviving comically large balls of rock. In this mm. case, if you eject... Because you're already sitting uh, so that your back is towards the engines, which is the best way to take the G's, which is the eyes mm -hmm. in, eyes out, which is what you were talking about. In this case, you don't want to accelerate forward because you're going to be going straight away from the rockets and then they're going to catch back up to you because they've got more fuel than your, than your ejection seat. So you want to go to the side and you can either pick... Uh, going in the direction, you know, that your head is relative to your body going up or going down or going left or going right. And going up is the best, <laughs> the best option. Now that makes cool. Yeah. So you basically avoid the Prometheus school of running away from things um, by just going off to the side. And it does look like it's angled up a little bit too. So it's, you are trying to outrun it a little bit, but also going, mm -hmm. you know, off to the side. I mean, it's, it's mostly because if you eject exactly sideways, it's like throwing a ball out of a moving truck or out of a moving uh, van. Like yeah. it, you, you have to account mm -hmm. for some longitudinal movement as well if you want to outrun it. So you don't oh, just yeah, smack yeah. it to the side. So this would be an eyes down ejection, right? Mostly because of the orientation of the pilot. Oh yeah, sure, sure. It's pulling your it's pulling your eyeballs towards your chest. And if you think about it, right? I mean, the Gemini ejection seats were also a lateral, right? I mean, they couldn't yep. blast you forward, yep. like because the hatches were off to the side. Yeah. yeah, if you're flying a jet straight up into the sky, it's gonna work the exact same way. And like part of that mm. is just because it's a a good design or, you know, a, an optimal design for this use case, but also because a lot of these things were just repurposed ejection seats from aircraft. Like they had already been designed. The militaries of the world already had access to them. They just slap them in a different container. Although that's for like an ejection seat. But if you're ejecting, say, the whole capsule, right, with a tractor motor, in that case, it doesn't really go to the side. I mean, I, it still does a little bit, but that tries to yeah. pull away from yeah, the vehicle. Yeah, you, right? so you pull straight because it's a, it's a bigger 
solid motor. So you have more time. So you can mm-hmm. pull up and away from the thing and then tip yourself sideways and continue burning slightly off to the side. But you know, because it's 20 seconds of, of burn time or 10 seconds of burn time rather than half a second or whatever the, the Vostok managed. Uh, and then for clarity though, none of, um, I, I don't think people were, uh, ejecting through these, um, or I mean, they, they didn't eject. This, these weren't any of the pad aborts or any of those times when, you know, they really did need to eject things. And this was also the era where uh, they couldn't quite land these things under parachutes like they were supposed to. And so I'm sure they just opened the hatch and bailed and, you know, parachuted their way down. So, okay. Uh, and then when I was thinking about this uh, event, I-, I wanted to also think about like the context because, you know, the Russians really did kind of... Or- yeah, the Soviets really ran ahead on a lot of different things uh, or uh, milestones, I suppose, in the early parts of the space race. Uh, although ultimately, of course, you know, the, the U.S. landed people on the moon, which, you know, the Soviet Union was not able to do. But um, but yeah, so basically in spring of 61, right, this is only going to cross, you know, two years. In the spring of 61, we had Vostok 1 with Yuri Gagarin, orbital flight. Then uh, through the spring, rest of the spring and summer, we had a pair of the Mercury Redstones, the suborbital flights, so uh, Alan Shepard and uh, Gus Grissom. Then, one year before this event was Vostok 2, which was German Titov and another orbital flight from uh, the Soviet Union. And then you move forward to early uh, 1962, so the year of this event, and then you finally get John Glenn doing an orbital flight, uh, Scott Carpenter doing an orbital flight, and then over the summer, uh, an X-15 basically breaking the uh, the American Carmen line with uh, Robert White uh, on Flight 62. And at that point, then you get these Vostoks. And so having these pair of spacecraft, hint, hint, <laughs> flying at the same time in the <laughs> summer of 62 <laughs> with... Only that little bit of, you know, crewed, you know, human spaceflight history before it is pretty impressive. Um, the first crewed Gemini mission was Gemini 3, and that wasn't until March of 1965. So again, we're talking about a summer 62 versus the spring of 65. So a good little gap there between Gemini, which, you know. Uh, and so I guess this is the time to explain the crew. The Gemini before Gemini, you know, the Gemini program did have, you know, spacecraft with a pair of American astronauts that would fly together. And this, several years before then, we had these pair of spacecraft that launched on orbit within 24 hours of each other. And so that's uh, a Gemini or a pairing of a different sort. Um, I also like that one person, I forget who, sorry, but uh, who would, uh, one of the winners uh, basically, uh, rather than emphasizing that it was, you know, two people on orbit together, which is the first time that had happened, Vostok 3 and 4, but also that they were uh, uh, rendezvous maneuvering was kind of part of it as well. And I'll talk about that later. And similarly, rendezvousing was a huge part of the Gemini program uh, from the Americans. Okay. So there's the context. That's the two crew. You've got Nikolaev on Vostok 3 and Popovich on Vostok 4. All right, so now the lead up. Uh, a lot of this coming from the great Russian uh, space web, uh, Anatoly Zak's wonderful website. So politically, why do this precise kind of mission? You had done two crewed orbital flights. Um, so what's the story? Well, um, at this point, it was to just get another notch under their belt relative to the United States, uh, you know, a- another uh uh, first, right, uh, in terms of like things you can do uh, on orbit and in spaceflight. And so the idea was let's get 
more than one spacecraft uh, on orbit at once, which is something that, you know, can maybe further uh, impress upon the public that the, you know, the Soviet Union is winning the space race. And so uh, there were some delays, though. Um, they were hoping to actually launch this <laughs> as, as early as they did, you know, in, in terms of, again, crewed spaceflight. Uh, they wanted to launch it in March of uh, 1962, uh, as opposed to August when it ultimately did go. But they ran into uh, a number of setbacks, including competition with these Zenit spy satellites. And Zenit's uh, needed the same pad, which is Gagarin's start, you know, the original OG pad that Yuri Gagarin launched off of, and the Vostok launch vehicle, because these Zenit's were what I alluded to earlier when I said you put a bunch of cameras inside a Vostok. That makes it a Zenit. <laughs> mm. And so uh, that was kind of why there was this competition there. And so, okay, so there's this competition, and so, you know, it slips here and there. But then uh, one of these Zenit's, uh, had this rather rough time, a ra rather rough go of it trying to get to orbit. Uh, basically, a strap-on booster fell off while it was still on the pad and caused a fire, but it still launched and crashed the whole vehicle 300 meters from the pad. So damage on top of damage uh, to the launch infrastructure. And so that was probably the lion's share for why um, this thing got delayed from uh, March to August. So that was no good. So they needed to make sure that they could, you know, uh, fix the pad and everything. And so they, they actually did launch another Zenit before they launched uh, Vostok's three and four to make sure that the pad repairs, uh, you know, were had, had worked. And, you know, they kind of wanted to certify that the vehicle could, you know, fly before putting humans again, uh, launching them off of that pad. Uh, but there were some also uh, some other things like, uh, uh, ironically enough, Ben, we talked uh, very briefly, mentioned Starfish Prime. You brought that mm -hmm. up last episode. Mm -hmm. And this was weeks after Starship Prime, the uh, high-altitude nuclear test that the United States uh, had detonated in the upper atmosphere. And so there were, there were concerns about the amount of radiation up there and, you know, putting a, a human being, you know, in orbit through that, or I guess in this case, two human beings. Uh, but no, I guess from modeling and everything, they figured that the fallout would uh, basically, I guess, precipitate out of the atmosphere uh, and it would be safe and not uh, essentially a non-issue for them uh, by the time uh, Vostok 3 and 4 would launch. And so, yeah, so they got ready to do the launching. The serial numbers of these were uh, 3KA number 5 was Vostok 3 and 3KA number 6 was Vostok 4. Um, the latter had some last minute gremlins that needed to be uh, ironed out before uh, they could launch. So that might have pushed it back like just a day or two. But at this point, you know, the crew and the support, uh, you know, uh, people were all, you know, at the pad and they were, you know, uh, really getting ready to go. And so then finally on, yeah, August 11th, 1962, at 11.30 a.m. local Moscow time, uh, Vostok 3 launched. And, uh, and a shout out to Uncle Willie for uh, uh, including in uh, their answer that this was the first flight of a Falcon, um, Sokol was the call sign for Vostok 3, which is which means Falcon. And so there's been a lot of Falcons that have flown, uh, <laughs> uh, some spacecraft, some Apollo ones, you know, and this was, uh, or some rockets, I should say. Uh, but yeah, so this was the uh, the first Falcon uh, in that sense. Uh, Nikolaev is up there uh, on his fourth orbit. He does something that uh, no one had done before uh, because uh, Gagarin and Titov just didn't do it. I think uh, Titov suffered from a lot of uh, uh, motion sickness during his 24-hour uh, uh, flight. And um, Gagarin uh, 
was just, you know, it was the first flight, and so uh, he didn't even try this. But uh, Nikolaev unbuckled himself from his seat and floated around a little bit. And so that was the first time that a person was just kind of floating around in a capsule. Admittedly, not much space at all. So it wasn't like, you know, this isn't a, a New Shepard flight where, you know, you can do some flips in there or anything like that. But um, there was, I guess, enough room uh, that he was able to uh, unbuckle and float around for a little bit. Because um, at this point, right, we're still figuring out how human bodies do uh, in weightlessness. Um, and, and if you're wondering, Mercury capsules were even more cramped than these Vostok ones. And so uh, they, they couldn't uh, unbuckle themselves uh, in a Mercury. Okay, so Vostok 3 had launched at 11.30 a.m. At 11.08 a.m. local, the next day, from the same pad, Vostok 4 launched. So just shy of 24 hours, but I mean, in 1962 standards, the same pad within 24 hours and hitting their schedule liftoff scheduled liftoff times by half a second, uh, that was a very impressive feat, <laughs> if nothing else, just being able to put these two uh, into the orbits that they did uh, with such a quick turnaround. And uh, Nikolaev, uh, right, they timed this uh, so that uh, he could try to watch the Vostok 4 launch. Um, so oriented the spacecraft and everything, but later admitted that he couldn't see anything. Um, he got some, he, he was able to see some, you know, beautiful details over Turkey at the time, I guess, as he was cruising towards Kazakhstan, but he, uh, couldn't actually see the launch of the, the, the Vostok 4. But that was all right because of how well these, uh, these rockets performed. The two spacecraft did a rendezvous of sorts. Um, they came within six and a half kilometers or four miles of each other. Uh, so that was close enough to, uh, be able to actually see uh, the other spacecraft, um, probably just as a point of light at that kind of distance. But um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, you think about four miles, I'm sure it was just a, a point of light to them. But pretty awesome that in 1962, we already had a, a sort of rendezvous uh, happening where it was more like the launch vehicles uh, put them on this uh, eventual rendezvous and not that they were actually powering their spacecraft to go and meet each other or change their orbits in any meaningful way, right? Which is always neat to think about, right? You know, before Gemini, uh, well, I can only speak about Gemini, but like in these early missions, you had the ability to control your attitude and that was it. <laughs> you couldn't change the plane of your orbit or you, you couldn't, you know, change your altitude or anything like that. All you could do is change your orientation and attitude and then I guess you could fire your retro rocket and deorbit. That was it. So uh, pretty cool. There was a lot of kerfuffle about whether this should be a one-day mission and they should keep like easing into like how how long they uh, uh, expose humans to uh, weightlessness. But uh, after a bunch of back and forth between Soviet brass, they settled on three days. And uh, and then after they were actually on orbit, they agreed to a mission extension. And so uh, each of them would end up orbiting uh, – uh, just shy of four days and just shy of three days, where Vostok 3, because it uh, was launched a day earlier, it got that extra day. Before landing, though, in Vostok 4, uh, Popovich uh, evidently had reported uh, Groza, which means thunderstorm, uh, and is evidently a code word that means, uh, hey, I've got some motion sickness and it's so bad, uh, I kind of, uh, I mean, it's getting to the point of vomiting. And so... Uh, although uh, follow-up communications, he said, oh, no, I really did just see a thunderstorm. It's, it's no big deal. And so it's a little bit of a, a controversy, I guess, for, I guess, Vostok 4 watchers as to whether or not he actually got sick up there. And uh, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, they both came down. And this, I mean, as far as synchronized launches within 24 hours, how about this for landing? Nikolaev goes and lands in uh, what 
Well, okay. Actually, I should step back for a moment. As to where each of the two landed, um, different sources kind of have them flipped. So I'm not exactly sure. So I should just say that Nikolaev landed first. And then six minutes later, Popovich uh, landed as well. And so they had both done the old ejection and parachuting down to the surface. And uh, yeah, one of them landed in uh, Kyrgyzstan and one of them landed in Kazakhstan. Uh, again, I'm not sure exactly which was which, but uh, yeah, synchronized landing within uh, six minutes of each other, which I suppose, you know, you fire your retros at the same time. It's not as impressive as, you know, launching within 24 hours, but still. What a neatly choreographed mission overall this was, you know, to really have these two separate spacecraft where, again, you had maybe a little over half a dozen people that have ever actually broke the Kármán line, period, let alone get into orbit. And you're already starting to do this kind of stuff. So I think it's pretty sweet. So the legacy of these Vostoks was that um, at the at the time they had beaten the uh, uh, record for uh, the U.S.'s uh, orbital duration by 60 orbits. So there was, you know, quite a bit catching up we had to do. And in fact, the, that they came so close to each other uh, fueled speculation that uh, they had already kind of figured out how to do uh, rendezvous and in-orbit maneuvers to get spacecraft to be closer to each other. And so uh, it turned out, again, that wasn't the case, but I guess that was just how well the launch vehicles performed that they, you know, started to get people in the, the West thinking that. And uh, yeah, so the Vostoks, uh, I mentioned that there were six of them. And so uh, they had, you know, five and six where six would ultimately fly uh, Valentina Tereshkova. Uh, this would be the next year in 1963. And then eventually Soyuz would replace Vostok after that. And then we would have Soyuz, uh, you know, changing over the years, but essentially still with us to this day, which is, again, one heck of a lineage. But in any event, that is Vostok 3 and 4's choreographed uh, launch in orbits and uh, this week in spaceflight history. Okay, well, thank you, Dennis. David, uh, next week is the 15th to the 21st of August. Do you have a clue for us? I do. Uh, so next week in 1960, the clue is that last step is a doozy. Okay, great. Well, if you have a guess as to what this clue is in reference to, email us at Info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon. Use the hashtag thisweeksf or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord to join our discord type slash TWSF to hand your guests directly to Tombot. All right. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We have five different events. Ben, what is the first? Okay. Up first is a launch out of China. Uh, presumably this is along March 2, but we're not sure which vehicle or what payload. And in fact, Launch Library 2 has no guess on the payload. Uh, it just states added launch per NOTAMs. So maybe it's a Long March 2, and maybe it's a secret military payload. Uh, anyway, this launch window runs from Tuesday, August 8th uh, at 2244 hours UTC to 2323 hours UTC. And again, that's just the NOTAMs. That's not an actual uh, launch window. And then after that, on the 9th, we have the final reminder of the Russian spacewalk EVA-60. So I think, we, yeah, we mentioned this one last week, huh? This is related to the new experimental airlock. Uh, so the coverage begins at 10.15 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, and uh, it's scheduled to last six hours and 30 minutes. The actual spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 10.45, so a half hour later. So, yep, tune in to watch that. And so next up, it's pretty nice to see uh, Virgin Galactic is really uh, increasing their pace like they uh, said that they would. And so uh, we have an upcoming Spaceship 2 launch. Uh, this is Galactic 02, which is their second commercial mission after their recent one where they took 
some people from the uh, Italian Air Force uh, to uh, on their suborbital flight. Right, Remember, this is a air-launched uh, horizontal suborbital uh, flights that fly out of Spaceport America, and uh, in particular, this one is going to be commanded by uh, Shuttle uh, Commander C.J. Sturkow, who's now flown, you know, for. Uh, Virgin Galactic uh, for quite a while now. And uh, it has a mother-daughter uh, pair from uh, Antigua and Barbuda, uh, as well as a uh, Brit that are the three uh, customers, I suppose. Um, and Beth Moses, of course, coming along uh, as the uh, uh, astronaut instructor. And uh, and also, uh, I guess, since I mentioned everybody else on there, uh, a shout-out to the pilot, Kelly Latimer. This will be her space flight. So, uh, yeah, have a good one up there, uh, Kelly. You can look for, out for this uh, on Thursday, August 10th with a window from 1400 to 2200, uh, again flying out of Spaceport America in New Mexico. After that is a Russian launch. Um, so Luna 24 was launched in 1976. And coming up this week is Luna 25, also known as Luna Glob. It is a lunar lander that is headed to the south pole of the moon, specifically to the Bogosklovsky crater. I think I put some extra consonants in there. And um, I am just uh, so thrilled that we get another Luna mission, like that the, the name uh, carries on. Very cool. So Luna 25 is going to be launching on a Soyuz 21B with a Frigate M upper stage on Thursday, August 10th at 2310 hours UTC. And then finally, and I guess it wouldn't be an upcoming space flight event segment without a Starlink <laughs> launch. So that's our final one. Um, on August 10th, uh, bridging into August 11th, it looks like we have a Starlink Group 69. So that's launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5. From Cape Canaveral Slick 40, and the window for that is 2323 on the 10th through 0554 on the 11th. So, yeah, very late night, early morning launch. And check that out if you want to watch a Starlink. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to dear about the show then, and we would like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific. 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Astro, Chris S., Deg Nasamims, Jordan, Mike, Sukir, The Greek, Ryan R., Delta V, and Moritz for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. Uh, you can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.